Grace and peace, you're listening to United We Pray. Taking racial struggles to the throne of grace, United We Pray is a ministry devoted to prayer about racial strife, especially between Christians. We want to help Christians think better about race in a way that is biblical and helpful, clear and hopeful. You can learn more about our work at youwepray.com. That's U-W-E-P-R-A-Y.com, where you can find articles, old episodes, and more. I'm joined today by Blake Long. Blake is a writer whose work has been featured at places like Gospel Center Discipleship, For the Church, Nine Marks, and right here at United We Pray. He is a husband, father, and author of the book Gospel Smugness that we're going to talk about today. Blake, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Glad to do it. Why did you want to write this book? Well, it, it really came down to seeing a glaring need, whether it's on social media or whether it's in person, just by and large, seeing the need of uh, I've seen many Christians, meaning well-meaning Christians, Christians who know a lot of theology, but they don't practically, when it comes down to it, they don't practically love their neighbor well in evangelism. And whether it's slandering uh, somebody on Twitter or just not really reading the context well in a conversation and whether that even comes down to just being socially awkward, I don't know. But Um, Just something that is pretty easily seen, and I know I'm not the only one who sees it, and and, and at the same time trying to make sure we hold hold on to the uh, gospel truths at the same time. You name something early in the book, and it's a concern throughout, that you have a particular concern that Christians not add offense to the gospel. So that's kind of a pregnant statement. What do you mean when you say that the gospel is offensive? Well, the gospel is offensive because, you know, it's funny, I, I think of that statement and I think of, I don't know what the song is, but it's from Beautiful Eulogy. And I can't remember exactly who says it, but he says the gospel is offensive because it deals with our offenses. And that's exactly right. That's the whole point. The gospel is offensive because it shows that we're sinners in need of a savior, uh, simply put. Now, there are a lot more things to that in regards to how that works out practically and how we are the messengers and we're the ones that are supposed to uh, share the gospel with people and tell them that, you know, we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But um, any way you put it, um, whether we get in the way or not, people are going to be offended by it because it shows them they're not as good as they think they are. So the gospel is offensive because it points to our need for a savior, which implies not even implies, just explicitly says, like you say, that we're not as good as we think they are. That's well said. So what does it look like when Christians add offense to the gospel? Well, there are a lot of different ways to this. Um, At least in the book, I can think of one instance when uh, somebody went to uh, a, a local restaurant and they they noticed a family member or fam- not family member but a family there that they that they knew of, and that their son had recently passed away. And so this person went up to the table, and you know offered condolences and prayers and whatnot. And they basically said, you know, we, we know he's up in heaven, yada yada yada. And um, the person who went up to the table uh, was saying basically, I. You know, I'm kind of butchering at this point, but she knew that uh, the person who'd passed away was a member of the Church of Christ denomination. And, you know, she basically said, you know, if you repented and believed, then he's in heaven. Um, but the, the family at the table, you know, said, well, yeah, he's been baptized, so on and so forth. And so she made a big deal out of that, though those aren't necessarily, or, well, though that's a true statement, 
it's not something that needs to be talked about at that point in time, uh, and and most certainly without that snarky of a tone, because uh, it is a true circumstance. It's a, a real life situation. I just changed things up for it, but um, it, it's stuff like that where we don't read the room well, or we let our sin get in the way. Um, it, it could be as simple as you know, understanding that if I'm sitting down with somebody who I'm trying to witness to in a coffee shop, I'm going to talk to them differently than I would if I'm on the, the edge of the street corner uh, preaching the gospel to the masses. Something you just do really well in this book is just to point out all the different ways that Christians can act like jerks. And we shouldn't act like jerks for a number of reasons, but one reason is it compromises our ability to share the message. You write, we want to show people the love of Jesus even as we communicate very hard things. So... We've looked at a bad way to do it or bad ways to do it positively. What are ways that our words or our tone can commend our witness of the gospel to folks who have a hard time with the message? Well, I, I hate to use myself as an example, but it's only because it's the first one that came up in my head and it's also in the book. But back in 2016, I was with my then girlfriend, now my wife, at her apartment. And um, we had just gotten back from a trip to Provo, Utah, Mormon country. And about two or three o'clock, we got a knock on the door. Um, that was very unusual for, for a Sunday afternoon. And I opened the door and there was these two ladies sit, staying in there. And I noticed the, the name tags, the, the two LDS sisters. So I know Mormons are at the door. So I'm kind of, uh, you know, giddy on the inside because I had just been praying for an opportunity for a gospel conversation like that. And God put them right in front of my, our door. And so we welcomed them in. And so we had a two and a half to three hour conversation about the gospel. And it's one of the things where I had to say, I, I knew I needed to say very hard things. Um, but I think my wife can attest that I had tried to do so in a gentle and soft-spoken manner because I, I think it's pretty well known that Mormons are not too uh, akin to confrontation. And so the, the moment it gets too confrontational, they're going to leave the room. At least that's what we experienced in Utah when we, when we went up there. But I knew I needed to say hard things. And at the end of the conversation, I still made one of them cry. And so that goes hand in hand with the fact that even if we're doing everything right, everything we're supposed to in a, in a godly manner like Christ, what we say inherently is still going to offend people, whether they get angry at you and want to punch you in the face or whether they cry and, 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 you know, go at the door, we're always going to have to say hard things. Um, and then, you know, in, in that circumstance, we always have to make sure to, to look at the example of Christ to make sure we are doing that well. And there's another positive example you use in the book. You point to three godly qualities which, which you commend throughout and you unpack each of them, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. So obviously these are fruit of the spirit mentioned in Galatians 5. Why do you think Christians are tempted away from those godly characteristics in conversation? I think most people are naturally inclined to not do those things. I know I certainly am. I'm, I'm not naturally patient or I'm not naturally self-controlled or kind or gentle. It's very easy that if we're not, it kind of comes down, it's kind of correlated with the question of uh, what is God's will for my life? You know, what do, what do I need to do? Well, that question or that answer is very simple. If you're in the word, if you're communing with God on a regular basis and so on and so forth, then just do something. And it's kind of the same thing with this. 
if I'm making sure I'm communing with God and in the word and praying and fellowshipping with my local church, then these issues of making sure we have self-control and kindness and gentleness, they're, they're not, they're going to come naturally for us because we're in step and we're yielding to the spirit. It's in those moments when we are, aren't in the word, aren't fellowshipping with our local church, aren't praying that it's, it's far easier to, to not be self-controlled in conversations. And then that's when we make the gospel more offensive. I think you're absolutely right. And I, I had sort of thought of another thing too, which is we can be discipled by the world mm-hmm. in just wanting to win every interaction, whatever that looks like in our own minds. And when we think it's our job to win, we are tempted towards ungodly methods. And something that mm-hmm. struck me in your book is just a quiet confidence that God will do his job in his work of changing hearts and minds, which reduces our role just to be faithful heralds. So it's not our job to change somebody in a way that only God can. And just that, that confidence clarifies the difference between our job and God's job. Can you talk about how that should look in life and ministry? Well, yeah, like you said, it really comes down to um, truly believing uh, that at the end of the day, God is the sovereign one. He's the one that regenerates hearts. He's the one that saves people. And so whether we are in an official ministry context um, as a pastor or leader, or whether we are a lay person just serving your local church faithfully, when we're having these gospel conversations, and even within the church, even if unbelievers come in the church, or if we're dealing with members in the church who are, you know, who are professing Christians, it's, it's both ways. We know that at the end of the day, our only job is to preach the gospel, is to share the gospel. And so that's kind of one of the things that we can, again, we can get in our own way if we focus far too much on numbers, um, looking at somebody as number five instead of a, a real person. Um, it can be very easy to forget their humanity. Um, and, and not practice empathy in the process. And, you know, I, I know the whole empathy conversation has gotten a, a lot of bad rep in the, the past few years, but we still need to have empathy, not in, the, in, the, not in the, the bad sense, of course, but just understanding where people are coming from, um, putting yourself in other shoes, because we were once those people. And so, yeah, when we have those gospel conversations, it makes it that much easier um, to to not get in the way of the whole conversation. You mentioned in your book another Christian virtue, kind of a forgotten Christian virtue, which you alluded to earlier, and one I have to keep coming back to, which is keeping your mouth shut sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Can you speak to instances when it is better not to speak? Well, in, in the book, I use two examples, and they're both examples of Christ. One instance when he did not speak up was when we, he was being accused by Pilate, and he decided to not say a word because he, he, he knew at that point that they had ungodly motives, and they wanted to crucify him simply because of his claims. And so he didn't, he didn't need to prove himself to anybody. And so in that moment, as the Son of God, he chose to remain silent because he didn't need to say anything else. At that point, obviously, he knew his mission. He knew what he needed to do. So he chose to remain silent. Sometimes we need to choose to remain silent, uh, whether it's, you know, the, the, the big thing nowadays is, you know, Facebook or Twitter, we need to remain silent. And that's going to look like you don't have to get in the conversation. 
it's Twitter. It's, you know, it's real life in a sense, but it's not real life in a sense. And then the other time, you know, Jesus spoke up, he spoke up. I believe I used the illustration or the story of the woman at the well. I think I could be totally wrong there, but I, I think I used that story and how, though he was loving and compassionate and gentle, he also spoke hard gospel truths to the woman at the well. And he, uh, of course, that led to her conversion and her spreading the gospel more and more. So I use those two circumstances. And so how we uh, think about that practically, again, it's it, it can it can come down to, you know, uh, taking a sabbatical of sorts from Twitter for a season because at the end of the day, we don't need to be head, dive headfirst into every argument or discussion. It, it's very exhausting, and I honestly don't know how people do it whether it's on social media or in person, it takes a lot of maturity because a lot of this stuff comes down to you're a Christian, but you're just, you're not very mature Christian. I mean, that's okay to say, and it's okay to understand because that's kind of the first step in sanctification is understanding we're still very immature. Knowing when to stop talking, knowing when to speak up, um, it really depends on the situation, depends on the context. And at the end of the day, it kind of comes down to just yielding, uh, yielding to the Holy Spirit. Because if we, if we focus too much of our energy just on what we think we should do in the process, I think that's when we get ourselves in a lot of trouble. I think you're right. And something sort of related that I wanted to ask you about, you bring up at the end of the book this concept of righteous anger. Mm-hmm. And there's the the most famous example, and who better to point to as, as as someone to emulate than Jesus, obviously. But the example everyone comes to is Jesus turning over tables in the temple. But we do something interesting when we read that passage. We kind of we sort of see ourselves as Jesus in that story, because then we turn around and we you know justify all of our angry behavior as obviously righteous. What are what are the dangers of righteous anger? So like, can a Christian have righteous anger, and what what can make that turn unrighteous? Well, yeah, a, a Christian can, not only can, but should have righteous anger. You know, I use the two examples of abortion and uh, false teachers in the book of these are things you should be righteously angry about. And if you're not, that's an issue. Um, so, yeah, we absolutely should uh, just about sin in general and our own sin. How that looks is where things get stuffy because we're not Jesus. We're not perfect. The times when we become righteously indignant or or angry um, quickly can morph into sinful anger if we don't, again, if we don't yield to the Spirit. Uh, There are many times, I'm sure, that we've all experienced anger for, for something that we should be angry about, but we let our own sin get in the way. And definitely for those who are more naturally inclined to be angry very easily. Um, I, I'm fairly, it's fairly easy for me to get pretty agitated sometimes if the, the timing and circumstance is right, unfortunately. And it's just one of those things where, again, it kind of comes back to if we are communing with, with the Lord. If we are not doing so, then it's going to be far easier to um, paint our sinful anger as righteous anger. And we, we, we like to say, you know, look at me, I'm being righteously angry about this, which you should be, but how you're acting toward other people in the process shows it's not righteous, it's sinful. Right. So again, it kind of just comes down to yielding to the spirit in the process. Appreciate that answer. And this ministry, I mean, you know, you've written for us before, uh, we are concerned with ethnic unity within the church. And I see a little bit of a parallel here because 
Most of your book is concerned with commending our gospel witness by our behavior. So what are the similarities and differences when the conversation is not, you know, preaching the gospel, but it's talking through something difficult and contentious like race can be sometimes? I, I read Shylan's book on the topic and I just, I loved every bit of it. Um, and part of what he talks about in his book is, I mean, there are different practicalities, but a lot of this comes down to first, we need to define terms, of course, but secondly, we need to stop assuming evil motives out of people. You know, obviously we have the, the social justice side per se, and then the other side is against it and all of this silly stuff. And I don't know if you want to say there's a, a blanket middle way, uh, but if there was a blanket middle way, I'd be right in the middle. And it's, it's one of those things where, yes, there is a point in time and circumstance in which we do have these conversations. And if we think or see according to scripture that somebody's taking things too far, then yeah, we, we certainly need to talk about that. But again, kind of to your question, that comes back to do so in a loving and gentle way. Um, we, we don't need to automatically uh, assume heresy in somebody because they think differently than us on this topic. Um, I can think of many instances in the past two to four years where I have disagreed with something, but I don't, this whole topic is not, you know, a huge topic that I, that I, you know, think or write far too much about. Um, and so I, I like to stay out of a lot of them because, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's, to me, it's kind of an in-house issue. It's kind of like dealing with, you know, second tier issues like baptism. We, we have to start, I, I think the problem in this conversation is we aren't treating others like we're not going to be with them in glory uh, forever. And then, yeah, there, there are those people on both sides really that do say, well, that person is not a Christian because they believe so-and-so. Um, I, I, I'm rambling at this point, but this whole conversation we, we need to, to stop assuming motives and we need to start not just as, not assuming motives, but assuming the best in people. Um, there have been so many circumstances when, yeah, I've seen somebody say something and I disagree with it. And I don't want, you know, I have examples in my head. I don't think it's necessarily the, the most perfect time to use those examples, but it's just so silly to me that we're having this type of conversation and it's really divisive in the church. And it's, it's sort of related to, to the gospel conversation, just simply in the fact that, yeah, we want to make sure the gospel is not touched and, and um, destroyed in the process. But at the same time, we recognize a few things. Number one, racism exists, whether you want to use the term race or ethnicity, People even argue over that, and it just drives me crazy, okay? I mean, we're just using the same same definition, but two different words. But anyways, um, it just comes down to loving each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and not assuming so quickly that somebody's committing heresy just because they say something differently than you on the subject. That's good. So even though a conversation between Christians— means that the gospel is not at stake because the people involved already believe the gospel. We still need to be kind, gentle, self-controlled. Our, our speech should still be marked by these gospel characteristics. Amen.
I mean, it sounds like you're not presenting anything revolutionary here. This is normal Christian stuff that we seem to have forgotten. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm not a guru on it. It's not like I just thought of this out of thin air. It's something that many people see and understand, and we got to do something about it. I mean, I say all the time, uh, you know, when I go talk to people about our ministry or if we're speaking somewhere, it's United We Pray is a boring ministry in that we have no new ideas. We, we, we just... Yeah. Keep going back to the basics of shouldn't you know. have new new ideas. <laughs> yeah, they shouldn't be new. If they're new, that's a problem. Yeah. Well, brother, thank you so much for this book. And folks listening, check out our social media feeds because we will be giving away a few copies of this book. We hope you get it and read it and are blessed by it. Blake, brother, we usually close out these episodes in a time of prayer. Would you be willing to pray for us? And then I will close us after that. Yeah, absolutely. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this conversation with Austin. Um, I pray that those listening are blessed by it and edified by it. Um, I, I pray that you help us in our evangelism, in our gospel conversations. Um, I pray that you make sure that we get out of the way, that we do our uh, our joy-filled duty of sharing your, your gospel, but that we don't get in the way of our own selves. Um, and I also pray that when we're dealing with any type of uh, race or ethnic conversation with people, whether it's with unbelievers or with, with fellow Christians, that we do so with charity and love and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for my brother, Blake. Thank you for saving him. Thank you for gifting him to think and write so well about these things. Lord, we just pray for your people, for believers who are evangelizing, who are working to build mature disciples, who are engaging with each other, uh, disagreeing at times with each other. Lord, we pray that we would do all of those things well. We pray that we would have this, this confidence that you are the one who changes hearts. And so we don't need to reverse engineer methods or compromise on our tone or the content of our words. Um, Lord, we can just be, we can just be heralds. We can just speak truth and trust you. Um, and so Lord, we pray that you would, you would do that work, that you would make your people holy, that you would make us kind, uh, that you would make us more like Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. Brother, thank you so much for the time. Friends, thank you for listening. As always, you can find more about our work at our website, youwepray.com. Grace and peace. <laughs>